one night um, the band was playing at Abbey Rose and I was there. I get bored very easily because I'm ADHD. And there was one of those gum poles. So I got up and I did a mock pole dance. Eddie tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Watch out for splinters, dear. Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode 25 of My Way. This is part one of a conversation I had with my new spirit creature. Her name is Carol Gibbs. Carol is a Grayton character of note. She is a Jane of many trades and has lived in Grayton for the last few decades. In 2018, Jacana Media published her first book, an autobiographical novel entitled All Things Bright and Broken. If you're a Greytonian and you don't know who she is, just look in the direction of the outlandish garden hats at the Saturday market. She's mischievous and tender, soft-spoken and brave, and she has more stories than a skyscraper. We chatted for hours on a Friday afternoon, and at one point, I just closed my laptop full of questions and let her take me wherever she wanted to go. So, find a comfortable spot, close your eyes, and enjoy the ride. Okay, my name is Carol Jane Gibbs, and there's a little story to that. My father decided to register me as Jane, plain Jane, and my mother, when she returned home from the nursing home, we spent 10 days in the nursing home in those days, she decided that was not on, I was going to be Carol Jane. So I carry a birth certificate and a change of name certificate. So I am Carol Jane named after dear grandmothers. I was born on the 8th of July 1940 at the Booth Memorial Hospital in Upper Orange Street. Um, What else can I say about myself? I have too many interests. I'm too scattered, sort of. I am ADHD, so I'm sort of scattered and um, what's that thing about master of none? Yes. Something like that. Yeah. So what I do is, I, I love decorating. I've been a stylist in my day, in my heyday. Opened my first shop, Antiques and High Class Junk, in 1976 in Hot Bay. Then I opened another shop in, in Cape Town in 1984. And thereby hangs a tale. There, there's always a tale with me. My mother was born on the corner of Hatfield, and Wandle Streets, above my father's, my grandfather's shop. Eight children were born. Today, if you walk up Plain Street and you keep walking, and you get Cape Town High on your right. That used to be Wandle Street. It used to continue over Mill, and if you if you're driving along Wandle Street on your left, you'll see there is still an Upper Wandle Street, and that's why it's Upper Wandle Street because it was all joined. Anyway. So, I decided to open the shop in Cape Town and I phoned my mom and said, Mom, you won't believe it. I'm opening a shop in Wandle Street. It's like history. And she said, where? And I said, on the corner of Gordon and Wandle. And she said, that's not a shop, that's a dairy. And I said, come on, Mother, 
climbed up the ladder, removed the greasy sign from the takeaway. She told me the name. She said it's called the Prospect Hill Dairy. And that's where I bought the milk when I was a child. And I took the, I get goosebumps. I took the sign down and it said Prospect Hill Dairy. Wow. So what happened is, my when my grandpa died, he was, my mum was 17. And they moved into, if anyone remembers where Top Mod was, there were a row of, of semi-detached double-story houses. That's where my grand lived after my grandpa died. So that's very much, I was coming home to the area that my mother was so familiar with. Wow. So that's my shopkeeping part. Um, and then I love history. And to my, I was, I was obsessed with the Boer War. And in fact, if you look at a piece of mine on the wall, it's the Boer War at the end there, with all the concentration camps named, by the way, the scorched earth policy. Anyway, my son, who's just about 52, uh, he said he's off on holiday. I said, where are you off to? He said, I'm going to the battlefields of Natal with two friends of mine. And I said, what? <laughs> I said, oh, I got a book for you. And the book is by a gentleman named Smale. It's out of print. And it's all about the, the, the wars in Natal, because I lived in Natal. But I had returned to Cape Town, so I boarded a train on Cape Town Station with that book in hand yeah. and travelled to Durban to see what I could see from the train window, because there's lots from the train window. And here was my son, all these years later, obsessed by the same bits of history. So, of course, he has the book today. I was instrument in, I was on the committee of the Heart Pay Museum, I've just remembered for many years, and they had absolutely nothing to start with. So I had 120 items on loan to them, um, and I did all the displays. I remember staying, the museum was opening the next day or something. I remember, I remember climbing in and out of showcases till like 2 o'clock in the morning. Wow. And I also belonged to the Sentinel Players, where I did props and stage sets, okay. which was great fun. Heart play was wonderful in those days. What else do I do? I, I'm an artist, so I painted acrylics. But I think my, and I do collages, but my best, best love are assemblages, um, which is 3D art in a box. And the person who inspired me is Joseph Cornell. If anyone Googles Joseph Cornell, he's the granddaddy of them all. Okay. He actually exhibited with um, Salvador Dali. In, he, he's, like his first exhibitions, he was that good. Um, so, of course, assemblages, um, the viewer becomes the voyeur. It's like a little world in a box. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I'm a writer. <laughs> yeah, just as a side note. <laughs> first, first autobiographical novel published. Second one written, uh, In the Wings Waiting. Oh, and I've been a restaurateur. I just forgot about that. We opened, yes, Well, let's just skip back a minute, because in 1986 we opened the first gallery ever in, in, in Grayton. Okay. And we had a Carol Boy sculpture, which was, there was a tiny room, it's where the gentleman does the sewing now, the great, etc. Yep, they have it they painted everything white, ceiling floor, everything. And we had this Carol Boy sculpture, and there was this lady lying on her side, and her breast was a dove, if I remember, it was about peace. And we had so many Mother Grundys saying, how can you put peace like that? It's obscene. And then one day the local policeman, in uniform, came into the gallery 
And he walked around and around the sculpture. And I thought, ooh. He came to me and he said, thank you so much. I've been inspired to sculpt. It was like a turnaround. And I thought, isn't that wonderful? Wow. And the other wonderful thing is the very first painting we sold from that gallery was Michelle's sister's work, which was lovely. And now we'll get to the restaurant. It's always been a dream to open a restaurant, and so we did. And we owned the cottage next door. Yep. So we opened a restaurant. And, of course, I was in seventh he- heaven because I styled the whole thing. Yeah. And Michelle is a passionate cook. And so that's what we did. And we called it the restaurant with no name. Oh. And... I had an absolute ball. I had a I had a red carpet up the steps with rose petals. That's what I did. I asked my daughter-in-law. She's an audiologist. Um, she's lovely. I asked her. I said, "You're always saying I'm ADHD. How do you know this?" She said, "Because you were 72 when you opened a restaurant." <laughs> Actually, I was I was older than that because I'm going to be 79. Okay. So if you count back five or six years, that's yeah. when we opened the restaurant. And we, we had the ladies' book club. I have never heard women so loud and so happy and laugh so much. It was such a pleasure <laughs> having them. They didn't talk a lot about books. <laughs> What's your first most vivid memory? Wow. Probably me sitting in my high chair and my father being angry and saying, say thank you for the banana, and I wouldn't accept it. It's my first memory. Talk about your family. Dysfunctional, first word. I think it's quite interesting looking back as an adult at your family. Because of my book, on my own, studied psychology, in this room, I devoured the books because I couldn't understand what made me tick and where I fitted. And the psychology books answered all my questions, well, never all of them, but made me address the problems I have in my life. Um, I think in dysfunctional families, what happens is you play, you have roles to play and they become rigid. And your family loyalty becomes, you have to keep those family secrets at all costs. Mm. So you actually don't react in a normal way. Mm-hmm. The first psychologist I ever saw was after my mother died. I had an emotional breakdown. And the reason for that is because you don't have a, a decent foundation. It's like the rug is pulled out from under your feet. And the first psychologist I told a bit of my story to said, you know, you can't be normal. <laughs> Not after telling me a story like that. You need help. And I thought, lady, you're trying to tell me something. I know I'm not normal. That's why I'm here. About, about nine months after my mother died, I was um, diagnosed with a malignant melanoma. And I think those two life-changing things sent me straight to this delightful man who... Um, he has a clinic where he addresses the whole of you. And I just walked into his office and said, I'm out of balance, please help me. Mm. And so I did something rather strange. I opted for mistletoe therapy for my cancer, which is a Rudolf Steiner way. 
and the mistletoe therapy I had was the pine tree was the host. And I just thought to myself, if it was good enough for the druids, it's good enough for me. I want to be proactive. So I became proactive. And you have to inject yourself above your navel for so many days and so many days off. And the other thing I did, um, I visited the nursery. This was just my way of handling this dreadful word. When the doctor down there phones you and says, sorry, but it's malignant, I think you better come and see me. Um, I went to the nursery and I bought a whole bunch of plants. And I planted a garden that I called my garden of life. And every morning I used to go out and check what was growing, and that kept me grounded. Because given my dysfunctional background, my obsessiveness, my personality, I could have driven myself nuts. I did drive myself nuts, but at least I had a little bit of sanity. Do you know, for, for children who've been brought up in with my background, people think, oh, you, you're adults, and so now you've got over it. Nothing can be further from the truth. You have to work at it all the time, mm -hmm. because what has happened to you is in the, it's in the very cells of your being. Mm -hmm. So your reactions are screwed up, and um, it actually affects every facet of your life. If you, if you read the, the author's note, which is the most important part of my book, mm -hmm. It explains to you exactly what happened, so I'm actually repeating myself. But I, I cannot believe that you said thank you for paying to read my book after reading it. I mean, if, if it was a piece of garbage, fine, but like, it was so unexpected, and everything was so vivid. I, I kept thinking of like Harper Lee and. Barbara King Solver and Annie Lamott and gosh. just like I'm humbled. Oh my gosh. But that's how it made me feel. Um and, and knowing that this inner it's hard for me because like so many of these questions just feed right into the book. It's like, well if you read the book then you can understand. If anything from this interview, I want people to read like I want everybody in this village to read this book I mean I want everybody in the world to read this book it's like you just you just completely like a sea cucumber you just completely inverted yourself and then put it all on the page <laughs> in the most sincere um self-effacing brutally honest way what were you like as a child what was I like as a child incredibly shy, which is often interpreted by the adults around you as shy, but it's actually not. There was a term that someone, some psychologists thought of in the 60s, and that term is frozen watchfulness. And frozen watchfulness becomes part of you because you are watching the adults around you all the time to see what they're going to do and how you should react. So I think as a child I was a nervous wreck. <laughs> I was, I, and I think I think throughout the book you find how the child, the children try and snatch bits of joy in this in, in their life. And I I think to myself, you know, how did I live through it? And I had these paper dolls, and I mentioned them in the book, and I mentioned them to my psychologist, and she said those paper dolls became your sanity. They were your family that were not dysfunctional. I adored them and in my head the far, the dark man with the brown eyes was my father and that was my mother and we had all these beautiful clothes, the children, and I could dress them whenever I wanted to 
and escape into that world. And I think that's what I did throughout my childhood, is escape quite a lot mm. into different little worlds. And I don't know, I actually don't know how to answer the question. Mm. I just remember being very shy and living in my sister's shadow. I copied everything she did and very often it was not so nice for her because she had to drag me everywhere with her. I always tagged along. And and I think the, the sister who lived across the road, God bless her, was the sanity. She was the one who intervened. She was the one who took us in. And without her, I don't know what would have happened to us many, many of the nights. Yeah. I think the saddest thing of all about my childhood is, I've just thought about it now, is that unfortunately because at the time I grew up in, divorce was a scandal, so there was no way out for my mum. I did pose that question to my psychologist and she said, and where was your mother meant to go with four children? And do you know, this is an interesting fact. The first shelter for women was opened in New York only in the 60s. Do you know why? Only in the 60s? Because, because there were so many, I mean specifically four uh, women and children, there were so many women found sleeping in cars with their kids. And that prompted the whole social thing about why is this happening? And it was because of alcoholic men throwing these women out with their children. I stand to be corrected, but I think I'm correct. I think it was the 60s. It was part of the research I did for my second book. So the sadness for me is that people didn't talk about it. I mean, we we got up and into school as though nothing had happened the night before, where the night before had been absolute chaos and hell. Yeah. And in Standard 4, I think I mentioned in my book, the teacher says, you didn't do your homework, and I said, so what? It was a bit of defiance. It came from nowhere. Yeah. It's anger, actually, because you have undirected anger yeah. as a child like that. The same thing happened to me in in, uh, in the second book. I mentioned um, being at boarding school in a bus and we going to a sports meeting. And I was sitting in the front of the bus, and at the back of the bus there was a boy, and he used the F word. I, didn't, I just got up out of my seat. I walked the length of the passage of the bus, walked up to him and slapped him through his face and walked back. I can't believe I did that, but I actually did that. Because my father used that word so often that I was sick of that word. And that was my reaction. So, you know, I was a strange child, as you can imagine, a very strange child. But it's interesting to see like where the valves are opened and stuff is released. So did you have any heroes or role models when you were growing up? Few and far between, except, um, yes, of course, my the, the wonderful sister who lived across the road. And you know, my father, despite what he was, he was not, I was almost going to say he was not a bad man. But I've tried to analyze him, and, and I mean, it's only in understanding your parents that you can forgive them and that you can understand yourself. Mm. And I think he might have been bipolar uh, because of his rages, and and I almost have sympathy for him in adulthood, trying to work out what made him tick. And his own father was very harsh with him. And maybe that was part of his hardness. Mm. So my my father, in his sober moments, we kind of looked up to him. I mean, he started his own business, not that it didn't go pear-shaped, mm. but he had tremendous courage in some ways because he 
He was an undereducated farm boy, but he put himself through college with, um, by correspondence courses. Really? He was a very bright man. As I've mentioned in my second book, he could have been anything. A scholar of the stars, he could have been, a, he could have been anything. Mm. But he was held back, so he was a very bright man. And he taught us good principles. He taught us things like, in Afrikaans, you do not touch another man's possessions. Yes. And if he put a brown paper bag on the kitchen table, we would not open it because it did not belong to us. Mm-hmm. So he taught us, and he always said to us, if you asked him a question you didn't understand, he said, go to the person who knows. Go to an expert. Mm-hmm. And those things are still with me. Mm-hmm. So he was... And you can be poor, but you don't have to show it. You can be poor, but you don't have... And he was always immaculate. Mm-hmm. He dressed beautifully. And he always said, put your best foot forward. Mm-hmm. So there were many things about him that were, that were good. And, you know, he did have that fun side to him. Like when he brought that ostrich home in the box. Yes. You know, he brought the ostrich and he, he said, close your eyes and open your hands. And then he said, change his mind. And he, he set it all up and then he called us. And that, that gave him tremendous um, fun, seeing his children happy in that way. Mm. And then, of course, there was the incident when he puts the, the little torch bulb up his nose when we're having Sunday lunch. Yes. And we're scared of him, so we don't know whether we should laugh or what. Right. And, and of course, then he burst out laughing and took it out. But we really thought it was his snot bubble. So, you know, he did things like that. <laughs> and at work, he had this um, gentleman, gentleman we visited who was always drunk, um, the friend of his. They worked together. And my father arrived early, and I can't remember whether I mentioned it in the book or not. It was pitch dark. It was in the winter. And my father put his hand over the light switch. So when his friend came to work to switch the light switch, he felt the hand. You know, it was a sort of prank they did in those days. Yeah. But he did have a, a tremendous sense of fun. And, of course, when he, when we stood on his feet and he, he danced with us. And, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, we couldn't hate him altogether. But it was incredibly confusing as a child because if you cannot yeah. trust the very person who's meant to teach you trust, who can you trust? And right. I think that's one of the great breakdowns with children in those circumstances mm-hmm. is that you don't build up trust, so you trust no one. So you go into the world with this suspicion mm-hmm. of people. I think my father was 30 when he met my mom. She was 20. And he was a man of the world. And apparently he had a drinking problem, but he hid it very well. So my mom didn't know. And they, of course, met at this party. He was the blind dad that was a stand-in for the actual blind dad. And I think she fell in love with him. She fell head over heels in love with a sophisticated man who dressed beautifully. He was charming. My father could have you eating out of the palm of his hand in a second. Mm. He had a wonderful personality. And my mother fell in love with him and it was a codependent relationship, but I think she was in love with him forever. And I remember them being very loving, um, you know, sort of having little quickies in the kitchen. (laughs) Right. Not all the way, but, you know, the loving bit. And I do remember that. And that bit was so confusing because then he turned against her and um, he called her terrible names and accused her of the most diabolical things which were not true. Mm. And, you know, then Sundays would be a normal family. They would have their their nap after after lunch and God help us if we made a noise. 
and then we'd jump all over him and say, now we want to go for our drive, because that was that was what families did in those days. We used to take us on the old pole road and have a picnic. And I, one of my memories at age 13 or 14 or 15, can't remember, was actually going with my mum and dad, with, with my little brother, because my sister was married at that stage, I think, still going for a picnic on the old pole road beside a river under the oak trees. And I remember that particular day, because that particular day, I was in a very dark place. That's why I remember that day, because I was at the adult questioning stage of what is this all about. Mm. Here we are, still going on these picnics. They're still together. Whatever happened then is still happening. Mm. Why? You know, and I, I started asking all these questions, and, and that particular day stands out. So at times it was incredibly loving and at times it was hell. Mm. It was a living hell for my mum. She had nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. We'd been to my gran for one year. We were sent back again because she couldn't, she was running a boarding house and you know these two kids, three kids, I mean she just couldn't do it and it shouldn't have been expected of her. So we were back in the same hell and mm. you know there was no money. Don't forget my father also didn't work for certain stages of his life when he decided to party on. Right. Um, so there was the money wasn't forthcoming and my mother was the breadwinner. I don't know how she did it. I do not know how she got up and went to work and earned that salary. I don't know. But she did. Did you have any dreams of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Oh, I wanted to sing. I think I mentioned a bit about my mother singing in the city hall. Yes. And because my mother told me that story, I wanted to be like my mother. So I thought that's what I'm... And you know, it's still on my bucket list. I worked through my bucket list quite a bit. But it's still on my bucket I'd love to entertain. Mm. I didn't mention that my mother at the age of 81 and a half still ran an entertainment agency. And I remember being at my mother's house. She wasn't 81 and she was much younger. It's in my second book. I remember my mother answering the telephone and saying, Stripper, male or female? Date? Uh, And my brother, in the second book, started playing the drums at the age of 13, I think he was. And he's he's been an entertainer ever since. Um, So it's, it's kind of in the blood. That's why I love appearing on stage. This is quite embarrassing, but... One night, um, the band was playing at Abbey Rose, and I was there. I get bored very easily because I'm ADHD. And there was one of those gum poles. So I got up and I did a mock pole dance, which is what I do, unfortunately. And God bless, Eddie Carter was there. I don't know if you remember Eddie Carter. Yes. Eddie tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Watch out for splinters, dear. And he said, I am going to get you a stainless steel pole and erect it for you. And our little joke, if ever we saw one in the village, you know, you stop your car, he'd say, pole's on its way. When Carol told me the pole dancing story, that is the moment I knew we were kindred spirits. Thanks for listening, and join me next time as we pick up the conversation and Carol leads us down the various rabbit holes of her life. I highly recommend her book, All Things Bright and Broken, which is available at Exclusive Books or on Amazon. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates. See you next time.